Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project here at UT and the the nominal instructor of this class anyway. This is the first of our second summer session podcast on politics and government in Texas. The purpose of these podcasts is to touch on Texas politics in the news, sometimes American politics, we can't quite help it, and do our best to connect it to the topics in the course materials. I'm joined this week by my colleague, Dr. Josh Blank, who's manager of polling and research at the Texas Politics Project and all-around Texas politics geek. So welcome this week, Josh. Thank you for having me again. I meant geek in the nicest possible way. Obviously. So today we're going to start by talking about a story that you should be seeing in the news to the extent that you digest any news about Texas, and that is the upcoming special session. So on Tuesday the 18th, the legislature will return for a special session, which is called by the governor per the Constitution. So as you should know by now or will know soon, depending on on where you are in the course material The legislature meets every other year for 140 days. If they don't get the business done in a way that is satisfying to the governor, the governor is empowered by the Texas Constitution to call them back into a 30-day special session in which the governor sets the agenda. That is, the governor tells the legislature by proclamation what they are supposed to do, and that really limits what they're able to do. They can't address things that are not on the proclamation, it'll be ruled essentially out of order if somebody tries. Now, this time it's been done in a, in a pretty interesting way, Josh. Josh and I follow these things pretty closely and have for a while. And the governor did something kind of different in the way that he's called the special session this time, right? Yeah, well, he did a couple things different, right? I mean, first of all, he's sort of doing, I guess, you know, another version of the two-step, right? Which is to say, he's calling them back. And the first thing that's being put on the special session call is just... The sunset bill. So what is a sunset bill? Basically, every, you know, 12 years approximately, and, it can be, and I guess it can differ depending on agencies, they can change this, but statutorily agencies are phased out. And this doesn't mean that the agency ceases to exist. It just means that it requi- it's a requirement the legislature reauthorize the agency, basically sit down and decide, are they doing what we think it should do? Should we change the way it operates? Should we merge it with another agency? Or should we just let it, quote unquote, sunset? And it's all agencies, boards, et cetera. Every, you know, this kind of goes back to the 70s, the good government movement, the idea that if if you just let government grow without being reviewed, it would grow endlessly. So a lot of states created what we call a sunset process to review the agencies. And as, as you say, it basically starts with the premise that if the review doesn't take place and renew the agency, Theoretically, the agency ceases to operate and exist. That rarely happens, and you'll read about that later in the semester. But the sunset is this key first item. The sunset in and of itself is like as a topic that you could just talk about. I mean, this is so sad to say, but it's a topic that someone could conceivably talk about for hours just because of like the way that it actually works and how how a certain type of person, a certain type of person, (laughs) right? Exactly, like all of you. But basically, what ended up happening was this session, the House, you know 
for reasons we don't need to get into, didn't pass a sunset bill, most importantly for the Texas, I guess, Board of Medical Examiners? It's, or yeah, it's a, yeah, it's exactly right. The Board of Medical Examiners right, which licenses and, and oversees medical practice doctors and, right. and all kinds of other professionals in the medical profession. Right. So pretty important, you know, pretty key. And the Senate could have moved on this. But in a move that was, you know, basically politically driven, you could say, right, the Senate held hostage the Sunset Bill because they wanted the House to pass some legislation, namely a bathroom bill, which you've probably heard about, um, and some other things. They chose not to do that, which basically forced the governor's hand to either call a special session or just allow doctors to kind of practice medicine willy-nilly throughout the state, which, you know, probably yeah. unwise. So... The governor did some interesting things. So first he said, we're going to do this two-step. We're going to deal with the sunset first. And then I also have a list of 19, 19 other, other issues that I'm going to then roll out after that. Right. So first of all, I mean, what's also kind of interesting about this is that, you know, at least in recent history, it's very uncommon to see that many issues on a special session calendar. If you paid any attention to the legislature at all, they move pretty slowly over a 140-day period. So over a 30-day period, the idea that they're going to address 20 items most of which are pretty controversial con or likely to generate conflict, of, right? Right. It's a pretty big ask. Right. So the two things that are really notable here are this kind of stutter or two-step, as Josh called it, where the governor says, okay, I'm going to proclaim this one thing. When you guys pass this, I'll then proclaim the other 19 things so that that delay in order to induce them to pass the sunset bill and clean up after themselves that happens sometimes with the budget, but the budget is the only thing the legislature has to do. So that's a different class of things. Then the other thing is the scope, the number of items that he's putting on there and is the pretty significant. And the fact that it's a large number of, of controversial items. So let's talk a little bit about what's on there. So Josh, you mentioned the bathroom bill. Let's just lay out what's going on with the bathroom bill. For those of you, again, that have, you cannot follow the news very much. And it seems to me you'd still have to have heard something about the quote-unquote bathroom bill in Texas, originally intended as an effort to, by conservatives in the state, to limit the ability of transgender people to use the bathroom of their chosen gender. It then became wrapped up in other kinds of messages about public safety, etc., and about the ability of local governments to pass ordinances that guaranteed access to transgender people. It's a big effort in the legislature by conservatives during the regular session to pass some kind of bill that would both limit transgender people's access to, we've thought a lot more about bathrooms than we ever yeah. have before, you know, multi-use or, you right. know, multi-occupancy, public, public multi -occupancy, right, multi-occupancy restrooms, showers, changing rooms, and showers, changing rooms, and also to prohibit localities, essentially the big cities and some school districts to create their own rules around this. Yeah. It was a very controversial subject during the legislature. It was essentially killed in the House. Yeah. And again, the politics of that, the House put forth a mild bill that the conservative leadership of the Senate, in particular Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, right. wouldn't accept. And so we're now back to that being on the agenda, but it's on the agenda in a peculiar way or in a specific way anyway in the special session. Yeah, the scope of this has really grown and shrunk throughout, you know, its life cycle in, in sort of on the agenda, right? I mean, you know, Abbott in announcing the bathroom bill said, you know, he really or announcing bathrooms as being part of the special session agenda. And I'll say specifically how he announced it, 
kind of harken back to something that didn't pass in the House, which was like House Bill 2899, which was actually broadly a bill that would strike all basically anti-discrimination ordinances passed by local governments. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's like the broadest instantiation of this would be right. like, let's just not have any non-discrimination ordinances at the local level. That was a little too big. And so we kind of moved along. And then it was like, well, how about we keep local government entities you know, from passing any laws that create special accommodations? For transgender people, or extend you know non-discrimination practices to a new group, or you know, right. and that kind of went on for a little bit. But then the idea was, well, maybe we don't do it with all the government entities. Maybe we just do it with school districts. And so then we were kind of focusing on school districts. And the house was basically we could move forward. That was on the that. compromise that was really on the table right. as of the very end of the the regular session. And the Senate, in particular, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick rejected that. And so now. He basically wanted the bathrooms, some you know, bathroom legislation to be on the special agenda call, special session call, and the governor put it on there, but he did it in such a way so that it was specifically relating only to multi-occupancy bathrooms, you know, showers, or basically change rooms. And the key here is the distinction between, you know, we're not talking about a bill that would broadly take on non-discrimination ordinances. So if you look at the bills that have already been filed, there are two in the House, and one basically says, it's one thing, one, one key to this is that it acknowledges that Congress has a right to pass laws that relate to discrimination, and those still stand. Because there was some question in some of the earlier bills whether they would have been in conflict with sort of federal non-discrimination laws or anti-discrimination laws. So there's basically the, the two bills that are in the House right now both acknowledge that those laws exist. Right. Got to save the Attorney General some money here. <laughs> This, this underlines just how impossible it is to talk about yeah. this quickly. And this so that, is the, the rabbit hole of yeah, all That's Jim's way of saying, hurry point. up. So then there are two bills. One basically says, okay, local governments, all local government entities cannot basically pass a bill that like makes special accommodations for multiple occupancy bathrooms. There's another bill that's exactly the same language, essentially, but it only applies to the education code. It only applies to school districts. And that's a good way to, I mean, what's, why would you pass, you know, put two bills in? Well, it didn't pass the first time. It's probably right. going to take a lot of compromise and wrangling if it's going to pass the second time. And so they're laying out a couple different paths forward on this. So that's one of the things. That's one <laughs> so of that's the, one thing. That's Yeah. So sunset bathrooms. So we, we will now talk about the other 18 things in identical detail. No, yeah. Just no, definitely not. All right. Let's talk about some of the other things. <laughs> okay. So there's another, you know, you can kind of group this as a, a couple of big groups. One, education. We went into the last session with public education on the agenda in both the House and the Senate, but in very different ways. So we're going to see two continuations of that discussion. The, the, the two th- in the House, they were really interested in revisiting school finance in Texas and the way that public schools are financed, trying to accomplish, I think, both an increase in overall funding, but also in changing the way that the money is distributed from one dis- among districts, the so-called Robin Hood system, whereas if you are a district that takes in a certain amount of revenue beyond a level, the state takes some of that revenue yeah. and distributes it to other districts. That's a very complicated system that is, you know, and obviously is, politically really unpopular. If you live in one of yeah. these property rich districts and you're paying, you know, this huge amount of money in property taxes. And, you know, like in Austin, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, some, I'm not going to say because I don't know exactly. I know what I think the number right. is, but I'm not going to say it. Some large percentage of that money is actually going to other districts across the state. Not surprisingly unpopular. Yeah, the parents in particular don't like that. That's been a very hard system to unpack. It's been in the courts several times. The legislature in the past has been forced by the courts to revisit the issue. In 2016, a court handed down a decision that said the system was terrible, but barely constitutional. 
therefore, you know, the legislature wasn't under the gun. Right. There's a lot of will in the House to work on that. In the Senate, the focus on education was actually not public education directly. It was on trying to create a voucher system. Again, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was the leader here. The idea there that you would find some way of getting some public money, put it in the hands of parents so that they could pay for private school or some non-public school alternative. Nothing or, happened yeah. on either one of those fronts. Well, because they're basically at odds with each other. Because they're, you know, they're very much at odds with each other for reasons that I'm sure will come up later in the semester. And the House has basically expressed their vehement opposition to the voucher idea. Right. So there is an item to create a commission to study and recommend improvements to the current public school finance system, which is <laughs> you know, a way, frankly, of the governor saying that something needs to be done about this later. Yeah. You know, whenever you see a, the creation of a statewide commission, it's a sign that there's no consensus on what's going to happen. And they're trying to signal that they're doing something. And then, you know, interesting, the call says, direct quote, legislation to empower parents of children with special needs or educational disadvantages to choose an educational provider that is best for their child. Now, if that seems like gobbledygook to you, I mean, you have to read into that. What that indicates is that one of the areas where there might possibly be an opening for some kind of a voucher bill, that is a bill that provides money for parents to spend on their own and make decisions that might be public or parochial schools, is in the area of special needs kids. That although is, there was, although it wasn't an evidence at the end of the session, because that's, well, where, that's where the Senate ended was how about, you know, how about doing this, just a very narrow program for special needs yeah. children. And I think the, the view from the other side, you know, that's sort of against this, and when I say the other side, I don't just mean Democrats, I actually mean a lot of rural Republicans, right. is the fact that this is just a gateway. Right. That's you know, the concern. Is that, choose, choose your folksy metaphor. It's the camel's nose under the tent. Right. Or, and then all of a sudden, you'll, you know, the next session will be a bigger program and an expansion. And once once it starts, right. you know, it's going to be hard to stop is what people would argue. Right. But, you know, that said, there is a little bit of, I mean, there, there's a little bit of consensus on the fact that the state, for various technical reasons, is not providing the level of service for special needs kids that there seems to be a growing consensus that they need to do. You know, I agree with you in that I don't think vouchers is going to be seen as the solution to that. But if you're wondering why this, yeah. that's well, why this. Well, it's also part of a larger conversation because Texas got into a lot of trouble earlier at the beginning of the session because they were capping how many, what percentage of students could right. be in special needs classes sort of arbitrarily in a way that, you know, seemed to run afoul of all kinds of law. Right. But part of that is a reflection of the fact that Texas is actually having trouble servicing these needs. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. So anyway. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. All right. So there's that. Property taxes, we know from polling that we've done that Republicans very much are interested, but so are Democrats. Yeah. Actually, Texans everybody, in general hate, you know, think property taxes are high, and they are. They are, because we don't have an income tax. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so, you know, there's some, again, an issue where there's a couple of different approaches out there we don't go into at this point, but the House and the Senate are going to have a hard time reaching consensus on this. A whole slew of things on state preemption of local government, and what do I mean by that? We'll definitely be back talking about this in future weeks, but... Try um, to contain your excitement. The governor has, has made it clear that he wants to assert state government over urban you know, policies that are being chosen by local governments. They're choosing their spots. One thing that people may have heard of is the on ride sharing in 2015, Austin. Is that right? Yeah, yeah I think 20, that's right. Yeah, 2015, 
Austin yeah, passed an ordinance that resulted in Uber and Lyft leaving Austin. It might even have been early 2016. Yeah. Time flies. But Uber and the ride-sharing companies kind of lobbied up and got a, a uniform ride-sharing law passed in the last legislature that essentially undid the Austin ordinances. There's lots of examples of this. And it's been, a, it's been a theme in the legislature. They're going to have several measures. They'll be looking at that. And then there's a set of, uh, there's a set of social, what we would call social conservative issues, more limitations on abortion, some attention to end-of-life issues, that is, uh, you know, people's rights when they are dying to decide to stop receiving care or the terms of palliative care, and another issue that's in the news in a couple different ways, voter fraud. Right. So Specifically mail-in voter fraud. Right. Yeah. So there's a... the governor, Needless to say, not much to do. Yeah. So I think, you know, before we, we depart from this, probably thankfully for most people, there's a couple things to notice here. One, the special session is a time when the governor can assert himself because he the governor is able to limit the agenda. This governor is doing that, and there are rumblings out there, too, that... You know, as you can tell by the level of detail we lapsed into here, you know, there's some very specific ideas in here. And so the governor is really asserting the executive's role in the, or attempting to assert the executive's role in the legislative process. Um, and we're seeing some pushback on that, particularly in the House, where the Speaker of the House has kind of looked at this and said, you know, I don't think we need to do a commission. I think we should actually put fixing school well, finance on the agenda. There are politics laden in this, but I mean, at a certain level, you want to note the kind of institutional, well, you know, branches of government. Yeah, and what, what'll, be play, what'll be interesting to see play out during the process of the special session and this course, while this is going to be going on, is the fact that none of these were easy issues. And the governor can limit the agenda going to the special session, but in a lot of ways, by having such a large agenda, he's actually opened it up, right? And so, you know, if you're actually following this really closely and you start to look at the bill filings, because once he called, basically, once he called the special session, bills started to get filed and everything. And what you'll notice is a lot of bills that don't seem to address any of this, right? right. Now, of course, the chances of those passing are, are very minimal, yeah. but it speaks to the fact that, you know, they are co-equal branches. And while the governor can sort of define what the, you know, what the legislature can work on during the special session, he can't tell them how to do it. Or what to produce. He can only sign it or veto it at the end. Right. And so, you know, the thing that's kind of interesting is in some ways is that, you know, by having such a broad agenda and every and in some ways he's really opened it up to interpretation and by both the House and the Senate to sort of address it however yeah. they feel like. And on a lot of these issues, they weren't close to a compromise during the regular session. It just seems I mean, I mean you were pointing out this morning how, you know, there's like a Twitter hashtag twenty for twenty. You know, let's you know, let's get all the issues done. When we've been talking in the during the last course uh, in the first summer session about you know what would it, what would success look like here? Do they have to pass all twenty items? Can they just yeah. get a couple key ones? What if they get ten out of twenty? You know, but they're pushing for twenty out of twenty, and I mean, that's a heavy lift. Yeah, I mean, I'd be pretty surprised if they got all twenty, but you know, ten out of twenty isn't a very good hashtag. We should come up with an over under anyway. Um, all right. Okay, so. We'll return to this. We can't really talk about politics right now on the day that we're recording this without talking at least a little bit about the big national story. The president's son and his his meeting in June of last year on Russia with a Russian lawyer and his sort of rolling out of emails that suggested that the meeting, at least to some extent, does seem to have been what people thought it was about. It was about 
at least with some connection with, you know, some at, at some distance, but some connection with the Russian government saying, we have information that is damaging to Hillary Clinton that right. was gathered by Russian government sources that we would like to offer to you. And, he said, and the president's son saying, that sounds great. I, I would love that. I would love that, I guess, is the direct <laughs> or quote. Or something like that. I wish I had a good Donald Trump Jr. impersonation, but I don't really know what he sounds like. Mm. That's been all over the news, you know, yeah. in terms of all this talk about collusion. We polled on this. And, in the you know, the interesting question that we can connect with the class to some degree is that up to this point, one of the things that we've seen in both national and state level public opinion polls is that, well, particularly people that are interested in foreign policy and in the integrity of the electoral system, look at this and see it as very alarming mm -hmm. out there among the general population. This issue for both Democrats and Republicans has been processed very much through a partisan lens. Right. So before this sort of recent revelation in the last University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll in June, we asked Texas voters whether they believe that there was coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. And overall in Texas, it's relatively split. You know, 39 percent of people said yes, there was. Forty five percent said no. But among partisans, 80 percent of Republicans said there was no collusion. 74% of Democrats said there was collusion. Now, you may say, okay, but, but now this new information has come out. Surely everyone will, will come to their senses or whatever, right? If you believe that this shows, you know, concrete evidence of collusion. Probably not. I mean, that's, that's the thing that you need to know about this. So, I mean, first of all, looking at like Donald Trump's approval numbers in Texas, just as a first baseline example, overall, he's about even. 43% approve of his job performance, 51% disapprove. 80% of Republicans in Texas approve of the job he's doing. 90% of Democrats disapprove. And this effect is so broad in the way that you interpret and understand information in the news, it even gets sort of to, you know, tangential and, you know, I mean, you can decide how related these you know things are, but other attitudes. So, for example, when we asked about Russia and whether you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Russia, 71% of Democrats said they had an unfavorable opinion of Russia, who I think generally people, I mean, Republicans and Democrats in Congress would say is, is our enemy in a lot of ways, right? Only 45% of Republicans in Texas said that they had an unfavorable view of Russia. 40% basically said, yeah, I don't know, which is kind of inexplicable given the history sort of of the Republican Party and its position right. and the history of the U.S.-Russia relations and sort of, you know, the, the traditional Republican stance on this stuff. Right. But to understand that, you have to understand that it's being viewed both through the lens of partisanship just as, you know, I mean, basically everything is in a lot of ways. But this doesn't change it. A new piece yeah. of information isn't going to all of a sudden make people say, oh, well, I guess Russia is bad. And it's partisanship intertwined with, frankly, taking cues from your leaders, mm -hmm. right, from elite opinions. And so, you know, you've got a president who put in the, in the most even-handed policy terms, mm -hmm. has advocated a stronger working relationship with Russia. I mean, he will say when pressed, yes, they may be our adversaries, but we have to work with them. And I think we can have a working relationship and we can work with Vladimir Putin, the, the president of Russia, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, that gets transmitted basically, you know, and, yeah. and part of, you know, that's, that's reinforced by partisanship, but there's definitely some kind of cueing going on. Well, and the, and the basics of how this works in the most simple sense is that people don't like internal conflict. So if I voted for Donald Trump or if I liked Donald Trump, or even if I, let's say I'm a Republican and I wasn't a huge Trump supporter, but now he's my president. I don't want to basically deal with feeling like I'm a Republican. 
identifying with the Republican Party and not liking the Republican president, which is why it's easy to see, you know, 80% right. plus for approval, right? Even though like- We're thinking again, he's saying something that doesn't jibe with right. some other feeling I have. And similarly, if the president is going out and saying, hey, we need a better working relationship with Russia, et cetera, et cetera, even if, you know, that's not really sitting with, you know, sort of your pre-existing notions of where you think you're supposed to be, it's easier to not have the conflict than to deal with the internal conflict. So that's why generally you see these sorts of attitudes kind of lining up in a way. It's called motivated reasoning. So that basically people don't have to deal with the conflict internally of conflicting attitudes. And so generally people just try to align their attitudes as opposed to deal with this conflict. And so that's kind of what you're seeing. You know, one of the things that we're going to be watching, you know, kind of going ahead for years now, I guess, is <laughs> seems that way. Is basically, you know, how much of the drip, drip, drip of the information eventually is enough for some group of people to say, yeah, this is too much. Right. But the truth is it takes a lot. This is the first thing you just need to know. Right. Because those, you know, the the things that are forceful in reinforcing that solution to that conflict are by definition pretty strong. Yeah. Right. So on that, try to be aware of your motivated reasoning as you work through your week. Yeah. And we will talk to you next week about new things in Texas government politics. Enjoy the class and we'll talk to you soon. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. 